Welcome to See Things Differently, a podcast from Remix Summits. This podcast is for creatives who want to be creative entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Peter Tullen, and your guide to the future of the creative economy. Thousands have gathered at Remix events in leading creative cities around the world, such as London, New York, Sydney, and Istanbul, to hear from the visionaries behind emerging creative powerhouses such as Meow Wolf, Punch Drunk, Secret Cinema, and Team Lab, alongside established players such as Glastonbury, Burning Man, and MoMA. I believe we're in the age of the creator, and through See Things Differently, we have another platform to share the stories of these pioneers who are developing creative content, products, and incredible experiences that are reshaping the economy. Finally, if you like what you hear, there are literally hundreds more talks from Remix events at remixsummits.com. And better still, many of them are free. So what's not to like? After a short hiatus, See Things Differently is back. Today's episode is taken from an event called The Future Happened Yesterday, A Story of Tomorrow, which was developed by Remix Summits, Grumpy Sailor and UTS. It was part of the City of Sydney's Visiting Entrepreneur Programme, of which the 2023 edition is kindly supported by Tech Central and the Greater Cities Commission. The episode involves a talk by leading techno-futurist Galit Ariel that explores the future of culture and how Createch, AI, the metaverse and other tools are changing the game for storytellers and creatives. The talk is followed by a panel conversation involving James Boyce, the director of Grumpy Sailor, Professor Bemley Hunt, founding course director of the multi-award winning Bachelor of Creative Intelligence and Innovation at UTS, and your host, me, Peter Tullen, co-founder of Remix Summer. We delve into how technology is changing creativity and whether it's for the better or worse. We also ask how Australia can grow its Craytech industries. First to our keynote, Galit Ariel is one of several City of Sydney visiting entrepreneurs and has travelled to Australia from Canada. She is a techno-futurist, author and award-winning creative, exploring the wild and imaginative side of bleeding-edge technologies through her practice. She is a sought-after speaker, curator and innovation facilitator for global conferences, organisations and think tanks, such as TED, South by Southwest, Slush, the European Union, Bell Labs, Microsoft and many more. Gilit has been featured as one of nine women that are building the metaverse by Unity and as one of 40 influential futurists by Forbes. Galit has authored numerous articles and white papers, as well as the book Augmenting Alice, The Future of Identity, Experience and Reality, which depicts the way augmented reality will shift core paradigms and interactions related culture, body, space and agency. She's currently conducting her research uh, creation PhD at York University, exploring emerging paradigms of presence and embodiment within immersive spaces. Enjoy her fascinating and provocative talk. Uh, my name's James Boyce, I'm from Grumpy Sailor Creative. Um, I'm the founder over there. Um, we're gonna talk about storytelling tonight, um, but I'd like to acknowledge the stories that have been told in these lands for many thousands of years. 
I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and pay my respects to Elders past, present, and future. We recognise these lands were never ceded. I'm going to introduce Galit, um, um, who will start to take it. Oh, here she comes. She's getting uh, ready to go. She's warming up. Um, she's a futurist, uh, originally from Canada. Um, who's gone on to do some incredibly impressive things. Um, in fact, her resume is very long and very interesting if you ever get the chance um, to take a, a look at what she's done. But her focus has been around um, creative technology and, and what its impact is on the future of tomorrow, but also um, looking at how to incubate creative industries, which is why we're really excited to be chatting to her today. Um, so without further ado, she's going to give you uh, a little bit of a keynote, um, and then we will move into a bit of a discussion um, with some other people up here on the panel. So thank you so much. Um. Good day. So thank you all for coming today. Um, and I'm going to go through uh, talking about what's happening in tech today, how it's related to existing in older technologies and ways of thinking, and how it's affecting us right now. So, technology. <laughs> so we've got to talk about the future that happened yesterday. And I want to start with a little story about the elevator shaft. So not a lot of people know that um, the elevator shaft was created three years before commercial elevators for humans were created. And it was in 1853 <laughs> where um, the Cooper Unit Building architect decided to integrate the elevator shaft, believing that elevators will be used for human use, even though there was no commercial case for that, and they, nobody thought there was a need. And I think this is one of the most extraordinary things when we talk about innovation. We, we keep thinking about the product. You know, what is the product? What is the technology? And we kind of forget about creating the spaces that will allow us to integrate them and facilitate them. So keep that in mind. We'll be back for that. So that's me. Um, so Galit Ariel. Uh, my background ranges from a variety of creative uh, practices. I started as an industrial designer, moved into brand and strategy, and then into experiential design and activation, and landed in my nerdy favorite space, space which is immersive technology and human-computer interaction. And that is actually allowing me to think about new technologies and how they relate not just, again, to the algorithmic value of them, but to humans, the spaces that they present themselves, the experiences they create, and the interactions we have with them. Um, one thing I have to tell you is that don't go into an argument with me because <laughs> I will write a book about it. And, <laughs> and my husband learned it the hard way. We were arguing whether AR or VR are better, and I told him, AR is better and I will prove it to you. So I created a book, I wrote a book, I didn't, but I also designed it about augmented reality and how it will affect different aspects of our lives. Not just talking about the ecosystem of technology, but thinking about the economies 
that will be created around it, the social impact, the intimacy, and our bodies, and even spirituality. And just to make it more fun, I also thought, hey, if you're going to write a book about AR, why don't you make an AR app about it? And that's in the era that, you know, the kits weren't available, so we just literally built it. That was not fun. So don't get into our argument with me. I have no more energy for this kind of stuff. But we'll talk about spatial computing in general. So a lot of us know cyberspace, right? Anybody knows who came up with the word cyberspace? No! Lies! It's always a man that takes the credit. <laughs> no, no, no. So in the 60s, Atelier Cyberspace, a duo of Danish designers that predicted that computers will be integrated into our physical world, created Atelier Cyberspace, which was a sensory space of installation that included digital and physical sensory spaces. They had concerts in the back. And only in 80, 1984 did William Gibson come with cyberspace. Has it turned? Yeah. 1984. No. Yeah, well, we can talk about uh, self-predictive science fiction dystopia later when we talk about Mark. But, uh, but basically, yeah, this is actually existing since the 60s. So again, the future happened yesterday. We always believe that things are happening right now, and we forget the origin. And I think this is actually a beautiful example of how this was seen, you know, and how we're moving again back in bringing these digital technologies into physical spaces. <laughs> and then, you know, the first, let's say, VR metaverse, I, um, that's the last time I'm going to say the M word. From now on, it's the M word. Uh, was actually created in 86 through Habitat, which was a chatting app distributed for Commodore 64, right? And uh, it actually ran, ran for a couple of years. Lucas Films were running it. Yeah, nobody knows. Um, and then it became a more social space with the incredible simulation space of The Sims, and of course, Second Life, which is still, still the, the most engaging um, virtual space with 200K active users to, till today, right? Even though it's screen-based and like very bizarre. But this works really well. Um, but let's talk about the meta elephant in the room. Of course, in the last couple of years, we heard about you know, how Mark has no friends, so he needs to fence with someone or make meetings in the M word. And we were all excited about putting our goggles and sitting in silos and interacting with flying corpse and legless avatars. And it didn't quite happen, but you know, what is quite certain is that virtual spaces where big audiences engage in, like gaming, are coming into our everyday lives. This is inevitable. Whether or not it will happen in VR or not is a different question. I believe it will, but to a limited amount. And we also had the amazing you know, outburst of Pokemon Go, that this is a Pokemon Go crowd looking for a Pokemon. 
um, and the little insanity that went with it, but it did allow us to explore digital assets within our physical space and actually also create 12 fatalities um, from people swimming into the middle of the ocean with their mobile phone. I know, that's stupid to begin with. <laughs> or falling off cliffs and some, a lot of issues, social issues of people getting into buildings and private spaces because initially the Pokemon uh, locations were randomized. And what we have today in the last few years is some advances beyond the, the platforms, beyond the devices that are now more capable in, let's say, playing these virtual and, and augmented spaces. We are having a really amazing cross-sectionality between gaming, filmmaking, entertainment, and everyday applications. And Unreal Engine, it's not the only one, but it's my personal favorite, because I'm dyslexic and I can't code Unity. But uh, Unreal, Unreal Engine is doing some amazing work in the field because they're enabling us to take real-time multi-user game engines and put them into filming environments. So we don't need green screens. We have actual environments in 3D that are hyper-realistic. We can even scan physical objects and transfer them directly into engine. We can manipulate it in real time. We have Generative, oh, I can go on and on, I wouldn't. But yeah, you should check it out if you haven't. They have amazing online courses and they're very open for experimentation. And of course, they, they also, uh, Epic Games that own Unreal Engine or have Unreal Engine, also have been introducing us to Fortnite, which is, again, one of the biggest virtual social media platform, and started doing something really interesting there especially in COVID, which is introduce us to virtual multi-user entertainment, running concerts with Marshmallow, with Travis, we'll talk about him, Ariana Grande, and allowing millions of users to simultaneously enjoy live concerts in virtual space. And myself as a creative always think about what does it all mean? What does it mean when we can add or simulate digital spaces? What does it mean to the spaces we already have? How can we elevate and, I want to say, I don't want to say simulate again, but I'll say simulate again, and simulate existing relationships we, ha we have with physical spaces? Because we tend to think about physical spaces, especially in the West, constructed spaces, as the buildings we see. We kind of forget histories. And you know, one of the projects I've done was to actually repossess physical spaces of capitalism. <laughs> And tell the story of, of, you know, and the real history and the cultural meaning of these spaces. So this is actually um, the stock exchange in Amsterdam, which was the first stock exchange ever made. Why did they do the stock exchange? Well, they had a government commercial company, which was the first corporation, the VOC, the South Indian, the East Indian company that we all know, and that is when we started having the concept of debt and equity in order to trade in humans and in commodities. And the whole idea of globalization of corporation basically started in that building that still exists. Okay, so we have these spaces. What about the body? What about our body? Don't look at my body. 
but think about your body and what does it all mean. So this is actually an avatar that my husband uses <laughs> to play. I mean, I wouldn't want to mess with that, and I understand it. And we've been using you know, virtual humans and characters and avatars in games in order to project our fantasies, to, to evolve alter egos and personalities in games. That has been known for years, but something really interesting is happening. So this is a Magic Leap uh, Dr. Grodbot Invaders AR live, live character avatar simulation game where you actually play against each other as character in real time, which is pretty cool. So we really are having digital cosplay in real time. And again, I wanted to take it a little bit further, asking myself, what does it mean when I can be anyone I want, or you can be me, because I don't care. <laughs> and I created um, a filter called Being Galit Ariel, uh, just allowing anyone to, to have my eyebrows, hat, and glasses, because it takes that little to be me. <laughs> um, and, and I want to emphasize, like, again, I don't care, but I don't know if you all know, but your somatic and visual appearance is not copyrighted to you. And today, especially, I can literally, from one image, I'm not even talking about 3D scanning, create 3D avatars of you, or you, or you, or you, and I'm allowed to do that. And I am allowed to go to the world virtually, or to a virtual world, or if I have AR or mixed reality set, to come as your body. As long as I don't claim to be you, I'm allowed to do it. So this is something interesting to think about. Oh. And then, you know, we all said, you know, virtual humans, we can be anything, the freedoms of the body. Well, this is actually, this is actually a cave drawing, cave art, from Australia, coincidence, of happy menstruating women, woo! <laughs> right? On the right, we have the Travis avatar, the perfected Travis avatar from Fortnite. I don't know if you know about this story, but when his concert was broadcast, Nipplegate happened, and like the back channel of Reddit were tainted with like, what happened to his avatar's nipple? You know, should he have a nipple or not? And I'm like, Jesus, people, I don't think his avatar is sitting there and like crying for that. But I thought it was fascinating that we are talking about this alteration and alter egos and, and all these potentialities, but we are still so obsessed about a nipple, a virtual nipple. So it was COVID, I was bored, and I decided to do, to do an app for that. So while everybody were playing with zucchinis, I was like, what about nipple head? Right? Very inclusive, non-gendered, you could choose your type. This was banned within 37 minutes for nudity. I was like, seriously? Seriously? Sorry, I'm excited about it. That was like, that became an obsession. Some people know me as the nipple lady. Anyways, I said, okay, what if, what if we create pixelated nipples, right? A cluster of pixelated nipples obviously don't have a body that we shoot out of our mouths. That should solve it. Three weeks later, it was banned. But like I said, do not challenge me. So the first thing I've done was to write 
an academic paper called Free the Virtual Nipple. But I thought the academics are not the only people that need to think about it. So I created a short called Nipped that talks, <laughs> that talks about what happens to canceled nipples and where do they go to live their best nipple life. So again, the question is, when we talk about the body and the body in virtual space, we have these illusions, we have these you know, image in our mind that you know, we can liberate ourselves. But the truth is we forget that technology is made by people and used by people. And it is the social and cultural context that will always define what we can and cannot do, right? So when we talk about digital freedoms, you know, there's only one place where there's complete digital fr freedom, and that's the dark web, and it's not a lovely place to be. So I'm not against some censorship and some social norms. I just want to question which ones do we choose to apply and which ones not, which ones can we break and which one we cannot. And we're moving into not just uh, a small iteration of human uh, thing. This is actually a 3D model that when I saw it for the first time, I did not think it was a 3D model. And the meta-human you know, avatars are becoming even better and better and replacing actors or reviving dead, um, dead artists. And even Kim Kardashian's dead. I don't know if you've watched it, but do Google it. It is amazing. And we are getting into a point that we don't just create real humans, we can manipulate and adapt things. You know, we deep fake, we recreate art, we recreate humans, we recreate spaces, and we don't even have to know how to do it. We could just murmur, make me a raccoon in space, and AI will create it for us. Really, it was one of the first cases. Um, so here's a question, you know, what is anymore our creation? What is other people's creation? What are we creating it for? Who is creating it? Is this art? We'll talk about it in a panel, but is this art? Is this art interpretation? Is this art disruption? You know, it's a really big question because everything is literally possible now, everything. And I always think that this is not the problem. As a trackie, who's a trackie? Who's a trackie? Raise, no, don't be shy. Oh my God, they're all Star Wars fans. Okay. <laughs> but as a trackie, you know, when I watched Star Trek as a child, you know, it was obvious to me that all these technologies will happen. And they all did, except of two, but they all did. Because we, as humans, are very much able to, to forge realities that we imagine. The question is, you know, these realities, you know, these technologies we're, we imagine are now creating realities that are beyond our imagination. And I think we really need to talk about it right now, not just about what we can do, but why we're doing it. And what does it mean for ecosystems that are related to it? And to what space? Are we injecting these technologies? You know, and we, we keep forgetting as well that, that these technologies are not just additive technologies. They can edit existing um, people, environments, in real time. 
and even, I call it the minority export, they can even take away, you know, blur or make people and objects invisible. So I did this experiment, this is years ago, about what happens when you let machine learning blur away the minority, which I don't know if you know, it's men, by the way, sorry. 49% males in Canada to 51% females. How do you like them apples? So what happens if I'm a racist? I don't want to see people from another race. I don't want to see ugly people. I don't want to see the other gender. What happens then when we can do basically everything? And as part of my own research in my PhD, yes, I am a nerd, if you haven't noticed, um, I am really looking into the idea of my digital self and what does it mean for my biological self if I, my digital self lives. And it's a project that started with sculpting myself, literally sculpting, not scanning, but for six months I sculpted myself every day for one hour, duplicated it, and sculpted myself again. I do not recommend you to do it. Very, if you have imposter syndrome, that will destroy you. Um, and it was a very bizarre, very bizarre uh, process because at a certain point, my digital avatar that I fully know mentally, I know it's not real, connected to me. And I didn't hear anything, but I heard it in my mind's eye. And the first word it said, because I'm not constraining her to gender <laughs> biases, was mother. And I freaked out. I just shut down my computer. I'm like, I'm not your mother. And, and, and it was like a whole process of then thinking about what happens when we are becoming digital gods and creating these co maybe cognizant things, these bodies that are us or not us. What are our responsibilities towards them? Because, you know, I never blame technology. Technology is perfect. It does exactly what we design it to do. So we have responsibility for ourselves, for the technologies we make, and for what happens when we unleash them in the world and when they create their own products and their own minds and their own spaces. You know, who's accountable for that? So this is where I want to finish, going back to the elevator shaft. Because it feels like we're in a moment that we're building all these elevators, right? That we're not sure where they're going they're going up, are we sending them down? We shouldn't, we should just go down and be with the people. You know, we're building all these elevators, but maybe not enough shafts. And I think the wonderful, amazing panel today will talk further about, you know, how do we create ecosystems for creative implementation, for ecosystems of creativity, of culture, of representation, and of meaning and not just building the tools themselves. So thank you. That was me. So we just thought we would um, ask some questions, bit of a change of plan, just ask some questions based on Galit's talk just now while it's fresh in our minds because we, the conversation I think will move in a bit of a different sideways direction. So I just wanted to, I guess, uh, offer the, up, the opportunity now. If anybody had any questions for Galit um, before we jump into a bigger discussion. Hi, I'm Stephanie. I'm from Sydney and also Wallabadeagle country. And um, my question is, so earlier you said that like computers would do exactly what we design it and it does it perfectly. I have to slightly disagree with that specific semantic 
definition, I think it's more accurate to say that it will do exactly as we say or want, to, oh sorry, what we tell it to do regardless if we understand what we're asking for. So that's how we allow technologies to proliferate undesired or unaccounted for consequences. Like, what, what would well, you say to that? I love semantics. So technology does what we design it to do. So if we design it to interpret what we're saying or to follow it exactly, it will do that. Right now we're doing, you know, big, you know, big modules that are processing. There's still, we're not in singularity yet, so they're still operating on algorithmic programming that we put in. Of course, it's, it looks like magic. They're doing it on its own, but we designed it, right? And, and I always say, imagine a world where we would have designed it differently. I guess in that case then, moving to a more like creative thing, because the example I was going to bring up was like databases, which might get a bit too technical, but it's a good example regardless. But like, I would say from that definition specifically, we're now saying that like the intended um, like Google suggestions, like when you start like typing, like the most prolific and well-known example is like you type into Google like black women and then it will say, why are black women so angry? And based on that definition, technically that was the intended effect, which I don't think the people at Google were trying to do. So I guess what I'm now trying to like steer the conversation towards is like, as we move into technologies that are going to proliferate into the creative spaces that are going to like impact our ontological experience, like how do we not do that? Oh, well. Let's go back to the 60s. Um, so again, I, I, I understand what you're saying, but still when we talk about big data system, it's still, we define what data it goes into. We might not know what the output will look like. There is a randomization effect, but we tell it if somebody asks you answer from this database. So it's still, we're not in a place that we have, as far as we know, because I still believe like in her, Maybe computers are cognizant. They just have better things to do, <laughs> you know. But, you know, I, it's more random. It's more open. But it's still confined to the way we designed it. And how do we undesign it? Well, <laughs> well, you know, I think, you know, we can talk about Google, but let's talk about the whole big tech industry. Um, and we spoke about it today earlier. We'll probably talk about it in yeah. Case, yeah, but let's just say that that industry started as a bunch of hippies that really wanted to do make great things, and it changed significantly. It is a capitalist, monetized industry, and that's what drives it. And unless we change it or allow for other ways of thinking of technologies to exist, it won't change. And if we participate in it, we only give it the power so it won't change. So there is a lot to unpack there. It's a very complex, you know, a lot of people say, well, it's the way it is, AI is already out there, it's done. I'm not that deterministic. I think everything is reversible. Even ChatGPT was banned in Italy for a whole week, right? It, but it's literally that easy, if we wanted to, right? We can reboot it. I don't believe in, you know, it's too late. Nothing is too late. We've done much worse and made better repairs. My question is more about 
the diversity of the output um, these AI systems give. For an example, so I hope everyone sort of heard about um, uh, Gen 2 by Runway. It's a text-to-video um, AI. And then there's also DALI 2, another AI system. So we were sort of doing a comparison in terms of output. And the question that was brought up was, so if I were to in input, I, I need an output of a CEO going into an office. So what Runway did was like it gave a very diverse sort of set of people. So you could make out, okay, that's an Asian person there. That could be someone from an African background and so on. But for DALI too, we, when we did the same, it was just all white people. So the biggest question was, so is the data set the issue or the people who are in charge of that the issue in terms of... Yes. Okay. Uh, just, just yes, in terms of both. It's the people that determine what data sets were you know, fed in and then kind of like we're okay with it and what came out, right? So again, these biases are baked and we know about technology biases, they're baked in just by the fact that, you know, the people that write the code might be from a more hemogenic group and for them, when they think CEO, they, they can't think of anything else and they are also tainting it with conventions. So all the imageries that we have, the data sets are actually quite, I want to say old, they're a couple of years old. Um, so we, were, we, don't st we still don't have like real-time data, data sets that are reflecting the zeitgeist. We have a bunch of data set that was scraped from the internet and from dark web. So Al-Qaeda videos, you know, pornography, child pornography, you know, this is why, you know, first uh, generation, when women were generating their own portrait, they were naked all of a sudden. So, yes, it's both. We're going to get into um, some pretty interesting conversation now, I think. But um, specifically um, with the changes that um, uh, technology is bringing to uh, uh, creativity, I, I guess my question for anyone really is around, you know, this relationship between the, the, uh, the inputter um, uh, or the, the transmitter and, and the receiver. Um, so, um, like you said, Galit, the, these technologies are really responding to how, A, they're being programmed and then how they're being prompted. Um, do we want to just talk a little bit about that or do we want to sort of take a back step and just talk about AI in more I think we've got a pretty knowledgeable audience here. So, does anyone want to tackle that question around technology as a tool um, and a storytelling? For medium? creatives specifically. Yeah, for creatives specifically. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to to talk about that. I think um, so. When I think about um, Craytech, I think it, you know it's a really kind of broad area. First of all. Um, what probably jumps out to me straight away is, and, I, and I've probably this is partly just because I've spent the last um, few months writing a research report on the future of immersive entertainment and immersive tech in particular, I think is one of the key drivers of kind of growth um, in this space. So, and, and that's really kind of varied. So we're talking about things like virtual reality, augmented reality, um, you know, kind of uh, haptics. We're talking about, you know, LED technologies, a whole range of different things. And I think in terms of creatives, there's probably two things coming out. So there's the role of 
creatives and using this stuff to produce um, you know, new types of creative content, you know, lots of experimentation around things like the future of storytelling. And I think separately, there's also how is um, Craytech changing or these technologies changing the platforms that traditionally have been the kind of showcases of creative content. So I'm thinking about our galleries, our museums, our kind of theatres. And then I think from the sidelines, what we're also finding is a whole range of new players that are just coming in as new types of platforms for creation or for showcasing creative content. So like perhaps that's best illustrated by, you know, kind of one or two examples. So um, my, my background is I, I run something called Remix Summits. We're really fortunate and we get some of the best innovators around the world in this space who talk about what they're, they're doing. Um, at our London event a few months ago, we had um, the head of Industrial Light Magic's studio um, in the UK, which sort of covers their sort of European region, and they were talking about um, uh, the work they've been doing with ABBA, of, of all people. So um, they're one of the kind of key collaborators in ABBA Voyage. I don't know if people have been sort of watching this on, on TV, and I think that's a really interesting example because when they talked about the, the technologies and the processes they'd use, so they... Um, in order to recreate a convincing kind of vintage 1970s version of ABBA, they used kind of, you know, motion capture technology, first of all. Um, having then gone along to kind of see the show in this kind of purpose-built 3,000-seat arena, which was just the most extraordinary kind of futuristic storytelling arena I think I've ever been in, you have actually what you think are kind of um, holograms. It's actually just very clever screen technology, lighting, um, uh, alongside obviously the kind of motion, motion capture of the band. But, you know, I went with a group of people who are pretty knowledgeable in this area, and we all sat there and we watched kind of, you know, vintage kind of ABBA, and it felt like pretty real, actually, to the point where you went, you know, I've kind of seen the future here. I can imagine this technology being sort of used in a whole range of different ways, whether that was telling historical stories, artistic stories. Um, you know, it was pretty extraordinary in terms of, a, of an experience. Now, that was a kind of 160 million pound experiment with industrial light and magic, you know, the people behind Star Wars and Jurassic Park. So that was very much kind of R&D &R that had gone commercial. But I thought that was kind of really interesting. But then at a kind of smaller scale, if we bring it back to kind of something like Australia, um, you know, I, I really like the work at a kind of creative level of people like um, Brett Levy. And he's a... You know, he's somebody working, uh, he's a, a, a sort of uh, indigenous creative. He works with um, Unreal Engine, and he uses that as a tool to basically um, bring back kind of country as close as it can be using that tool. And again, if, you know, if you've seen some of the uses of Unreal Engine now, particularly Unreal Engine 5, where you're getting to the point where these things are becoming more and more lifelike and photorealistic, um, you know, he's able to kind of peel back those layers of histories and you think about how much our kind of landscapes have changed in places like um, Sydney. It's a really amazing tool for telling those stories, for connecting people back to culture, even though it's a, a digital representation. And if you've been to the Art Gallery of New South Wales since it's, it's reopened, um, there's a really amazing um, artist called uh, Lisa Rihanna who's done... Uh, she, she's from kind of New Zealand, who's done an even more amazing version, I think, of the work that kind of Brett's been doing. So, yeah, just maybe a couple of examples of the way maybe creatives and platforms are using those tools. Yeah, look, I think it's it's an interesting comment there. Um, there's a, a fabulous uh, podcast um, that was 
released only a couple of weeks ago, uh, Diary of a CEO, where um, Stephen Bartlett interviews Mo Gawat. Uh, I just had to check his name. He was the um, the former uh, director of business at Google, um, who kind of defected um, after seeing what AI was capable of. It's a really interesting conversation. We're going to send out a list afterwards of all the things we're talking about here today so that you can have a read through. But the reason I bring that up is because he, was, he, he started the argument of the only time that, uh, or the only place where AI um, and create tech is, is not really going to, he wasn't calling it create tech, he was specifically talking about artificial intelligence, particularly uh, gen AI. But he was he was talking about this, this, this idea of ABBA being, well, that was the counter argument to him uh, where he said the only place that it's not going to be disrupted is around physical performance between an audience and a performer. And uh, and then Stephen brought up ABBA as, well, you know, it, it, is that what the world looks like? And I think one of the questions we're going to get into later, maybe we should get into it now, is sort of what are audiences, do audiences care? Um, do audiences care that there are their heroes um, like... Uh, the the other example that is brought up is the Drake album, um, or the, the the two albums that were created by an AI that sound like Drake and look like Drake and smell like Drake, but aren't Drake. Uh, but you're still bobbing your uh, foot to them. I, I think this is an interesting comment. I don't know whether anybody um, wants to talk about that relationship between the audience and the um, and what is being created out there at the moment. Um, also, the Beatles. Oh, the Beatles! Yeah, don't, that don't, that, don't definitely come in. Don't right, forget about the Beatles. Also. Should they be doing it? Um, yeah, that's. I think you know this goes back to to a much deeper question um, of do we create art and creative products because the audience wants it? You know, so you know it's a conversation we had earlier. There's a difference between art. And entertainment. So you guys are jumping right to my good I'm stuff. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, so let's say the audience wants it. The audience also wanted social media, right? And it became a monster that fed itself and and kind of purged beyond good things. Also, the worst behaviors that we had because we wanted it, mm. right? So again, you know, this it's it's not just about the technology. It's about how we accept it and. A, how it's built to multiply itself, but how we react to it. And it's very hard not to react to it because it's built to make us react to it. Um, and I think we are in a point that we really need to have like very deep conversations about the wants and the needs, you know, because again, everything and anything is possible. And I think a lot of these amazing horizons um, are built also for audiences, but audiences will surprise you also about how they react and, and reject. Yeah, we had a we had a great lunch, as you can probably tell. We we <laughs> we, uh, we went deep into this, but look, so my my view, I think, was you can have both. So, so like ABBA was kind of interesting. You know, a million people have seen it already. It's booking out to 2026, and I, I likened it to so that's for me that's it's entertainment, obviously to it to it to an extent, but I, I likened. Um, so apparently like one in 90 Americans have now seen an immersive Van Gogh show. There are so many immersive Van Gogh shows that are going around the US that people can't even recognize like one maker of the show from another. They're just like, they're everywhere, you know. One operator's claiming they've sold like five million tickets in a year. So you're talking people going to these things to the level that they would go to some of the most visited museums like in the world. That's, that's the kind of box office success that these things are having. And I think for me, 
that's kind of really interesting. It's is that entertainment? Is that art? Is that people producing that creative form for a particular audience that they want to consume it in? You know, we in Australia we now have the, have the Loom. You know, the Loom sells more tickets than the NGV. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Is that just how some people are presuming to to see their art? Will it last five years? Will it last ten years? Who who knows? But I think for every Loom, you've also got things like Team Lab in Japan. And you know, for me, if people have followed the work of Team Lab, that feels to me much more like 21st century digital art. But they've also, you know, in their 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 full year prior to kind of the pandemic hitting, you know, they had 2.1 million visitors to their um, you know, museum, if you want to call it that, in, in Japan. Um, and that made them the most visited museum in the world by a single artist or an artist collective. And for me, they're a really interesting mix of artists, scientists, technologists, and have produced something completely different to, you know, those kind of Van Gogh shows, which I think are kind of much of a muchness, that are also connecting with audiences. So maybe you can do both, you know. Ben, uh, we, we we had this conversation around nomenclature um, earlier um, around you know what constitutes creativity. Before we get into that, though, the 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 big question really is around um, the role of creativity, um, and I know that this is really um, a key aspect of your work, both here at the university but also in your own practice. What, what, what role does the creative have when um, you have all of these tools at your disposal and does it change um, uh, the creative process? Are we looking at the output? Are we looking, are we looking at the delivery or the process? Yeah. Sure, so I, I see creativity and technology as separate but also interlinked. I see humans as having a right to be creative. It has led to our evolution to this time um, and we have to be human-centric about our future and the need to be creative. And I think I told a story at lunch of one of our Bachelor of Creative Intelligence and Innovation and Creative Writing students who decided to play with blackout poetry. Uh, I don't know if you know blackout poetry. It's making poetry from a found text. And she was telling the story of how she... How she thought she was pregnant once, and she was in a restaurant, went to the loo, trying to understand how to tell her boyfriend, and then in the end, she got a pregnancy testing kit, and she made blackout, an amazing blackout poem from the, from the instructions on the kit. And um, essentially, a machine could have done that really easily, could have easily created that poem, but could the machine have got pregnant? Did it need to write poetry? Had it had a relationship with a million mothers to create the language for that poem to exist and to have meaning for that person who was doing the writing? So I really believe philosophically that there is a, an important role for creators and it shouldn't be lost. Also, creativity shouldn't be lost because what's happening with a lot of the tech, even before all of this really funky stuff, is that you know, architects being y using sort of CAD programs are creating boxes rather than, you know, more, more spiritually enlivened buildings with the, they might do with freeform. And things are all beginning to look a bit the same. Um, I'm really wondering what template-driven creativity is going to do to that creative impulse in the long run. Um, when you think in this way, you get given a design thinking template, you get given a, a process and channel down that process. What happens to the wild imagination? 
and what happens to the complex challenges that need to be solved in our time. We need our creativity to, we need to save some of our creativity for that, not just for entertainment. Um, uh, hands up here who's from a university right now and who's from industry. Hands up for industry. And those from university. Okay, so um, I'm not sure how many of you will know about BEM's work here at UTS. So I think it's really important that we talk a little bit about that. But particularly to your question around animation tools, right? Because they are tools. Right, and, 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 and they have to be recognised as such. And, you know, no matter what you pump into these um, systems, and yes, we're approaching, from more reports, we're approaching singularity, right? And, and that, that ultimately these, uh, uh, I don't know, weapons of, of, of mass attention grabbing will ultimately end up being able to create, it is argued, what a human could. But you lose a lot of context um, um, in, in terms of, and I think that's what what Bem's main point is is there, is really around the, the the context of art and the context of creativity, and and the I guess the problem solving aspect of it um, that there there is a lot of context lost when you're putting a prompt in um, uh, that that it won't ever be able to capture until it can right, and so I, I think that maybe we can just move and pivot into. Education um, and and how edu because because education is really right at the coalface of um, what is happening. It's not so much developed skills; it's emerging skills that is probably one of the um, the, the biggest challenges in this space at the moment. Um, yeah, it's victims of your own databases, really, um, so to speak. Uh, okay, so in our university that we're sitting in, as in every university, we have this big challenge with Chat GPT. Um, it's threatening education as we know it, this sort of formulaic um, spitting out of knowledge that has been practiced for so long that we've been trying to change for so long as well, trying to get what we describe as more authentic assessments, not writing an essay but doing something that you might do in the real world, for example. And um, our students, we just run um, deep workshops with our students around and and asking them, what do you want? They desperately want to have this included in the curriculum. Otherwise, they're not going to be prepared for the workforce where they're already using these tools. And it doesn't make sense to say you can't use it. But then how do we use it? And there's a big shift in uh, how we think about assessment now, which is about time, not just spitting out an essay that you'll never do, but an authentic assessment that has the, all the money that you would spend on marking at the end done during the period of a course where you actually observe people and interact with them as they learn. So the really creative learning piece. So there are some really wonderful things that can come out of it, but everyone is struggling to keep up at the moment and create policies because, you know, we have to make sure that students, when they walk across the stage, um, can do and um, say and think like they we we claim they can yeah oh um so grumpy sailor for for those that don't know grumpy sailor you may have um come to this talk for uh through a, a very many other myriad of channels but we are a creative practitioner so you, you've got academic uh, you've got uh, futurist you've got uh, a, a research um oracle as i mentioned and then myself as a practitioner and i think 
one of the things that uh, we often talk about at the studio is the is the process of learning by doing. Um, and uh, um, and just because I, I, when you were speaking before, Galit, I was just just because you can doesn't mean you should um, is always the thing that I um, uh, come back to. But there was a um, there was a quote I wanted to read, um, uh, which I think is really valuable, and it's something that I speak to most of my creatives about. And uh, I'm a um, I'm a big fan of podcasts, um, and the grandfather of podcasts is um, a fella um, called Ira Glass. Um, but he has this um, quote uh, called The Gap. So I'll just read it to you um, and I'll try to read fast um, just so that you can get through it. But nobody tells this to people who are beginners. I wish somebody had told me. All of us who do creative work, we get into it because we have good taste, but there is a, this gap. And for the first couple of years you make stuff, it's just not that good. It's trying to be good, it has potential, but it's not. But your taste, the thing that got you into the game, is still killer. And your taste is why your work disappoints you. And a lot of people have to get past this phase, they quit. A lot of people never get past this phase, they quit. Most people I know who do interesting creative work went through years of this. We know our work doesn't have this special thing that we want it to have. We all go through this and if you are just getting starting out or you are still in this phase, you've got to know it's normal and the most important thing to do is a lot of work. Put yourself on a deadline so that every week you will finish one story. It is only by going through a volume of work that you close the gap and your work will be as good as your ambitions. And I took longer to figure this out than anyone else I've ever met. Uh, it's gonna take a while, it's normal to take a while and you just gotta fight your way through. Now I find that deeply resonant as a, as a practitioner because it's, it's um, I don't know, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, I think it's The Tipping Point, um, talks about 10,000 hours. Um, if you haven't read it, it is a, a brilliant book around, um, um, I guess, not tip, it's The Outliers, sorry, it's Outliers, um, where he talks about the Beatles doing their 10,000 hours in Germany and that the only way that they could have been the Beatles, who are now being converted uh, into a new album. Uh, uh, but band. A band, sorry. But it ba got yeah. band. And, uh, but, but that whole idea of closing the gap is sort of becoming irrelevant unless you want it to be relevant, right? It's now easier and faster and more efficient to do these things that you were previously unimaginable. But now we've got, into a, got ourselves into a place where, well, if I do that and I cheat the system, what am I learning? Um, and. Uh, that process is actually a really critical process to, to growth, to evolution. Um, when I'm going through those kind of moments as a, as a human, um, I think I, we were talking about the, the value of poetry. Um, poetry only really becomes truly valuable when you're going through a really hard time. Um, and uh, the reason poetry is important is because when you read it, you maybe going through a grieving process and it reminds you of, of your humanity and your shared humanity. Um, and so if that was written by an AI, Galit, would you still be as resonant, do you think? No. <laughs> Actually, you know, part of, of what I was doing with my avatar, it's not mine, with the avatar, <laughs> um, was trying to, to Again, use AI, I said, well, now it exists, let's co-create. And I first used some engines like, oh, I'll just gonna put some words and we'll do AI poetry. And it came out and it was like scarily, you know, representative. And I'm like, and it, 
I was immediately repelled by it because it was too perfect. It was synthetic. And then I decided to sit with my avatar and, we, and actually to write haikus together because I found haiku as a poetry, like you have a very mathematical structure. It doesn't necessarily mean something definitive. Um, and it was a process of having the machine generated and rewriting it until it felt right for both of us. Um, but I wanna say that, you know, I'm not too worried in the sense of, you know, you know, the death of creativity. I think it will affect the creative industry a lot. It already is in the short space. I have a very, a lot of confidence in Gen Z. Gen Z! They're the new Gen X, and they're actually, you know, the students that I'm teaching, they're, some of them are interested, and some of them are just not interested at all, because it's not novel for them. They're like, yeah, we know it, they might use it, but they're actually insisting to go into, I wanna say, old school techniques and, and you know, stop motion and handmade things. So again, like what we have is here to stay. We can't unbottle it, but it doesn't mean it's going to be the only thing, you know, for sure. And um, I actually think there will be, you know, a counter movement of this. So if we have ABBA performing, I think all of a sudden, intimate, small, impromptu, in-person performances will have so much more value because they won't be that, right? So, you know, again, we'll have yeah. periods of uh, one. It's that shifting, it's the shifting gears, right? Um, and that, that as that, as change happens, we need to respond to it. Um, well, we will yeah. respond. Humans are, if anything, they're the most responsive, not always for the best, the most responsive thing. Like we, I, were, we were talking about yeah. COVID. Sorry. No, you go. No, you go. No, you go. No, you, you got to talk about the killer app. Yeah, we were talking about COVID, and I was on a panel, the oh, beginning yeah. of COVID, and you know, I was on a panel um, with other futurists, and they were talking about immersive <coughs> tech and digital, and they were like all so excited, and one of them said like, yeah, I put my VR goggles, and I went to the gym, and no one will ever go to the g physical gym again, and. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, like there are riots. You know, kids are crying, begging their parents to go to school, unheard of. And the killer app of 2020 is sourdough bread. So, you know, and I think COVID was really interesting because it did put us within this digital realm that we didn't choose, we were forced to be in. And we are more eloquent in it, but we are also more distant of it. I think maybe the, the opportunity is that, you know, these things are tools, you know, it might make things more efficient or speed them up, um, but I don't think we're going to lose that that sort of human element, um, you know, there's layers or the context I think you were talking about, Bam. I think, I think the creator's probably more safe in this model. I do think the kind of the institution, in terms of cultural institutions, faces a few more challenges, but they can also make use of those, these tools in different ways. And it was interesting, again, when I was in um, 
like London. London's got a pretty huge, like immersive tech cluster now. Um, and it has a really big kind of immersive experience um, economy to the point that it's starting to rival. You know, we talk about Broadway or the West End as concentrations of theatres and you know, music venues. And, and like London's immersive sector, like in our research, we mapped it as over 45 kind of immersive entertainment shows and experiences that were happening. And you could see actually the, cult, the more traditional cultural institutions, some of the most traditional you might imagine, were actually being kind of infected by what was happening here. So an example would be um, like Layered Reality, who are a kind of immersive technology company who've run a very successful, long-running, uh, immersive version of War of the Worlds, the H.G. Wells novel. So you go into this kind of warehouse, um, you wander around, and they, a lot of it is actually quite... Um, still analog, a lot of it's actor driven, but they use things like immersive projection, they use things like virtual reality at points. You might remember in the novel there's a bit where um, there's a kind of Royal Navy warship, it's being attacked by a Martian. You'd have to have a pretty big warehouse to put a Royal Navy warship in there. So that's a bit where you go, into a kind of boat, the boat moves, you're wearing kind of VR. Now this has worked very successfully as a commercial attraction, several hundred thousand people have bought tickets to it. They've recently teamed up with um, the Tower of London. You don't get much more kind of traditional or heritage than the Tower of London. Um, and it's interesting, you've got this um, organization which is very much about the kind of facts and curation uh, and, and, and the tradition and telling stories in a certain way, but they've recognized to tap into Gen Z and, and those new audiences, they have to tell stories in new ways. So they've teamed up with Layered Reality. Uh, they've chosen to tackle the story of um, Guy Fawkes and the kind of the gunpowder plot. Um, and it was pretty amazing. You know, you kind of wander around these different spaces that are in a kind of disused part of the Tower of London, which at one point was a kind of failed kind of McDonald's in this kind of uh, fast food, former fast food restaurant and you're kind of transported into kind of medieval London. But there are areas where they use things like smell-based technology to make it bring it alive, make it more kind of realistic. Um, they uh, use things like virtual reality. There's a point where you get a kind of bird's eye view of medieval London. And again, you kind of know it's a computer you know, simulated kind of version of London. But again, you can imagine where that technology is going to be in a few years' time. And it does provide other elements to the story. It doesn't detract from uh, the way the Tower of London might tell that story or from the actor-driven, but it's about the mix of all these different elements. And I think, for me, these things are kind of tools, I guess, would be a long way of saying it. And, and actually, the toolkit that you've got now is pretty exciting, actually. You know. it, it is an amazing toolkit. I, I, and I think that you know, one of the challenges that we spoke about earlier, which I think is probably worth bringing up, is sort of because you're talking about how the market responds, um, and uh, and uh, the we've talked about how the individual responds, but sort of what 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 from a, I guess you, you started talking about institutions, um, which are really at the forefront of the creative industries, um, uh, as as well as um, practitioners, but. Uh, we talked about responding to this change. Ben, you and your team are responding to it from an educational perspective. But how should, um, I guess, the those that can, uh, and I'm talking about um, uh, government, I'm talking about um, uh, cultural institutions, academic institutions, more generally, sort of what should the response be um, um, in terms of... Uh, 
how we how we approach this rapidly changing landscape. Mm. I think it would be really wonderful if we hearing what what goes on in London compared to what goes on in Sydney. It would be wonderful if our um, funding bodies could actually uh, take a few more risks around um, that very sweet spot of where uh, technology that hasn't been invented meets human needs that we don't know are needs yet. I guess like, you know, the equivalent would be like an Uber. We didn't know that we needed to jump into a car with a stranger, for example. Um, wouldn't it be great to have some really big risks with our arts funding bodies? And also small risks. Small because risks as well. From, from Canada, what I'm finding out, because Canada is has a lot of funds for digital funds, but it seems to me, and that happens not just in Canada, that... You know, there's there's a new boy in the hood, you know, metaverse, AI, and governments do put money into it. But perhaps, you know, again, in Canada, the funds go to established studios, to, you know, it's the return of investment. They, they need to feel like they're putting the money and there's a product coming out, and they're missing out from, from you know, the real artistic experimentation and fringe that is, again, like, you know, the cyberspace started with a weird Danish collective doing weird stuff, and, and today we think it's this. We're forgetting about the seeds, we're forgetting about, you know, the, you know I call it fabulous failures. Mm. You know, I, I tell my students, you know, you, you're all gonna pass, but you have two paths. You either do the thing or fail gloriously. But maybe we should, on International Failure Day, which is, I think, 13th of October every year, we should all be able to pitch an idea for an artistic, creative yeah. happening in Sydney or, or in Australia somewhere. Yeah. I think we should just... This, the risk is not putting money in a technology that we think will generate money. That's not a risk. Yeah. The risk is believing that we can give it to people and some of them will make it and some won't, and that's okay... You know, that's the risk factor we're it's missing. It's the different sorts of money, isn't it? I think, um, you know, certainly when we're doing our research into the UK cluster, like one of the real benefits, there was a program called um, Audience of the Future, whatever that is. Um, and that was, you know, um, nearly 100 million Australian dollars of risk money for kind of R&D in the immersive tech space. And it was a really interesting cast of characters who tapped into that funding. There were, there were tech startups, like the, the Royal Shakespeare Company teamed oh, up with Intel and Unreal Engine and did a kind of online version of, a live online version of, of Midsummer Night's Dream. And they found, you know, 25% of the people that logged on were entirely new audiences that had never been to, you know, the Royal Shakespeare Company. Um, and none of that was kind of market driven. It really was about experimentation with technology, but there's a number of companies that have come out of that that are now doing, um, you know, more commercial activity. They've attracted investment. So in four, in the last four years, the UK investment in immersive tech has uh, basically gone from 500 million to a, to a billion pounds. So it has had some kind of commercial outcomes as well. Uh, but it's needed that, that risk money from kind of government. But I, I would kind of love for the risk money to continue because again, you know, and the Royal Shakespeare Company, I would follow them, Sarah, you know, they are, they've done the Tempest before. Yeah. They've been risking, you know, they've been integrating immersive tech before anyone thought it's cool. And they've been doing it in such a beautiful way. 
right? But I wish that they would invest, again, not to grow, just invest to keep, invest, again, invest to fail, even if it doesn't grow. This but, is the budget we're giving the people. But they're such a good example, aren't they? Because they're not necessarily the organization you would see at the vanguard of innovation. That was one individual, Sarah Ellis, at the Royal Shakespeare Company, who's their director of digital development. And when they did the first project with Intel, do you know how she basically got into Intel? And you think this is Royal Shakespeare's company, they've got like a little bit of clout, we all know who they are. She literally went onto the Intel website and went into, you know, the kind of like, if me or you went on as like a customer going, you know, Directory. onto that contact form was like, I'm at the Royal Shakespeare Company, like here's my idea, is there anybody at Intel who like might be interested in this? And apparently like somebody kind of forwarded it on <laughs> three people down and that's where that project yeah. originated. And I think, well, like cultural brands, they hold a lot of power yeah. and, and authority. So like those are the kind of, com I guess what, it, what, what sits behind it is who do you want to have conversations with? Do you want to talk to the people you always talk to? in your world of theater or in your world of museums, or do you want to find some new collaborators and then tell stories in different ways, you know? So weirdly, Grumpy's first project 13 years ago was with the Royal Shakespeare Company. No. With Sarah Ellis. No. And it was Dream 40, it was the 40th, uh, and, and the reason that project got up was because the funding came from Google. Google's Creative Lab paid for it, it was, a spectacular disaster. The, the, the whole project was... Glorious fate. Oh, it was, it was glorious. We, um, um, at the time, uh, T, you glow, some of you might know T, um, took a massive risk on me because I was really interested in fragmented narrative. So it was before the times of Trump. I were really interested in, well, um, when you go to a dinner party and somebody's waxing lyrical and they're kind of, uh, they've formed their opinion based on minute elements of, of information, um, my frustration was, well, you know, are they actually an expert? Because they sound like an expert and they were really quite frustrating for me. Well, are we all doing that now? Are we all just getting glimpses of narrative from various places? And so he said, well, if we took something like Midsummer Night's Dream and we put it into the internet and we shot it through the internet, would you still understand it as, as... And then we spoke to Sarah, and Sarah said, well, why don't we put it on at the same time and we'll perform it and put it out. And that's where that whole uh, dynamic started with, with, the, with the Royal Shakespeare Company because of this um, funding that came from Google, which was not about funding the outcome. It was funding the process. Yeah. And what we learnt from that, well, it kind of blew everything away when Trump came in and in terms of that kind of uh, that fragmented narrative and how, and how uh, people base their opinions on very small amounts of information mm. became, you know, um, a reality. But it was a, I guess what I'm saying is that funding the process as opposed to the outcome is critical to innovation. And, and uh, yes, we need the big maintainers um, and the projects that we are the sure things there has to be some room for these things that might not make 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 it work. We're going to move to questions. Um, so can everybody just stand up for one second and just shake it out a little bit because everyone's a little bit. Um, all right. Now we're going to sit down, back down again. It's interactive now. Um, um, and, and only the trackies stay up. <laughs> trackies stay up for me. There you go. Yeah, yes. There you go. Couple of nerds in the audience. You're getting That's more great. by the minute. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Um, so we'd love. <laughs> That's um, how it begins. Love a couple of questions. Hi, I'm Bryn. I'm from the city of Sydney. Um, I'm not really sure what the topic is anymore, so I'm not sure if my question's on theme. <laughs> um, but I, I guess what it prompted for me is we've been talking about creativity and art and the tools. 
but everything that we're talking about in terms of product is incredibly commercial, but the history of art is mainly about unveiling what was happening in society around suffering and, you know, class divides and things that weren't being picked up by the, the elites, right, basically, right? So, and or it was popular after the person died and we go, oh, shit, that was actually quite good, wasn't it? Um, so that kind of idea of creativity and art, not as its commercial value right now, but it's its cultural value in time, where do you see this conversation in light of that? I think, um, you know, the, the nature of art and the immediacy of art have accelerated in the last decade, you know. Like, you know, Van Gogh died, you know, with, you know, unappreciated, and I don't know if he would cut his other ear if he would have seen the, the immersive experience, or he would say, finally, I can eat. But I think this is also part of a cultural issue you know, of, of, again, the immediacy and, and the blurry line between the value of art as being popular and the value of art of being of quality and the value of art of being entertainment. And it's very hard to make the definition. I mean, we see Banksy, you know, he's an artist, you know, anti-commercial, very commercial. Um, it's very hard you know, there, there is more, I don't want to say there's more artists. I didn't live in, in past centuries, but there's definitely, you know, we were talking, you know, at the, at the very, you know, at the 1400s, you, you really, you know, art was a hobby or you found like this mecenat sponsor king and you could draw, you know, commercial art basically. So I think there's, there's a big discussion to be made here of what is art and what is creativity. Um, I like to, to have an analogy to, to Stephen Colbert that was talking about the difference between truth and truthy, right? Truthy is something that seems like could be true, but it's truthy enough because we're so quick to, to accept things that we kind of like lean into it. So there is a big question of what is art, even with digital tools, you know, I, and what is arty? What is create a creative person dedicated, and that's what they do, versus people that say they are creative because we were told, like, you're creative, you're creative, um, which is a very interest, well, interesting thing because it wasn't so popular to be creative. It wasn't such a big thing, and, you know, it became you know, with, with design thinking and these processes that became part of business practices as this garnish that looks good. And so if we've done a rotating cube and exported it as NFT, we're a digital artist, mm. right? Um, and, and we spoke about it today, and, and for me it's like saying, I can do math and thus I'm a mathematician, mm. right? We have to make this differentiation because it became like this thing that is super easy and perhaps with these technologies even easier. How do we tell the difference between a digital artist that have done the work and process and came up with a product into someone that murmured into the machine and came up with a product? Where do we see the context and the process that are essential for art and when do we only look at the product? And I, just to, to add to that, I've had an argument very long um, drunken argument um, once uh, along the lines of what constitutes an artist, right? And, and an artist, 
where we got to, and I'm not saying this is the only way to look at it, but an, an artist has to self-identify as an artist. And that's one of the, 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 the biggest things, that, that, that uh, in order to create art, you have to self-identify as an artist. We, as Grumpy Sailor, sometimes are the commissioned artist. Other times we are working in commercial creativity and we understand that line um, and we have a different uh, part of the business which it, it has a different name which is specifically for our art commissions. But I think where we're, work, where we're heading into um, untrod ground is the ability for somebody to call themselves an artist because they threw a prompt into mid-journey yeah. and then all of a sudden you've got something that looks like art yeah. and smells like art but is not art um, because it doesn't have the process behind it. Um, um, and, and, you know, this is a... This would, be, uh, this would be being argued in every major art school around the world at the moment um, around what constitutes yeah. art in this modern world. And from my perspective, I push it into the toolbox it's just uh, these tools are just another uh, element um, or, or another paintbrush in the toolbox. And this, this but room story is the most important thing from my perspective. Yeah, there's, there's, look, no there's, story there's room for all these things as well, isn't there, just to, to finish that? Because I think you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a really interesting debate to open. And uh, I think tonight, for me, I actually probably wanted to push the kind of creative entrepreneurship bit more, if you want to call it that, because I think actually there's never enough, but there's a lot of support and programs that have always been out there for supporting art for art's sake. And every civilization needs that. You know, we need artists just to produce art because that's what they do. But I actually do think we're moving into a, a different world as well, where there is an opportunity for those artists ooh, to, to make a kind of sustainable living from their art. And in some cases, you know, when you look at the Meow Wolves and the Punch Drunks and the Secret Cinema in this world, I'm sure there'll be people out there who know what I'm talking about, to really kind of scale their creativity. And they believe by scaling that creativity and taking that creativity all around the world, and then they're exporting their art all around the world. So um, I think actually we need more programs to support artists that actually want to develop sustainable work, because actually that's where the gap is. The gap isn't in the conventional traditional funding schemes that support artists for being artists. That's what we've always been doing. We actually need to shift government and policy to be supporting new generations of artists and creatives to be able to do things differently so they're not entirely reliant on government funding just to fund their art because there's never enough, there just isn't. So in that spirit, my one advert for the night, if anyone in this room is either working in creative technology or an artist, we're running a brand new program with the Australia Council for the Arts, which is shortly about to be Creative Australia. I've been watching the news. And this program is about supporting creative entrepreneurs to develop digital creativity projects, but where there is also potentially a kind of a revenue or an income outcome as well as a creative outcome for those artists. Because we don't want them to be one-off projects, we want them to make a living out of it. So, yeah. Question. Thank you. Too many thoughts went through my head in that conversation. And I'm just going to anchor one where you were talking about process and what is, uh, how do we interpret art? As in, uh, I don't wish to be political and or unpatriotic against the poster girl. But I am uncomfortable when Melanie Perkins calls her Canva touchscreen movers 
designers. And um, so I just wanted to mention that point. Uh, so I can't help it, and I think what's really missing from the conversation is um, we do it because it's a human DNA intelligence. And so I happen to be highly visual spatial, and I can't help it. That's my DNA. And so while like economic forces may say we need to grow potatoes or programming COBOL for banks, um, I have this secret life of being quite a brilliant artist, and I can't help it. And so I think I have this uncomfortable conversation with a scientist who is all stammered against steam. And I hold my ground extraordinarily well, but I am not into the devalidation of the entirety of humanity and our multiple intelligences. And I think ultimately that is a scientific ironic debate that when we talk about art and creativity and the multiple dimensions we have here, we must come back to the point of why we're all in the room. Can, I, can I agree? And I also, we're gonna go in drinking about your statement about if you call yourself an artist, you're an artist. Because I think, yes, you know, you, first of all, I know artists that never called themselves an artist and they're artists. Second of all, I think there's also a level, you know, again, there's a difference between being able to do something and actually practicing it every day, doing the work, doing the grind, or, you know, doing it out of passion. That is what constitutes for a creative, in my mind, the, the stamp of being creative, not because they played with ChatGPT or Midjourney, you know, because they made, make a choice or they have the compulsion of doing it. I also know people that work in artistic thing, but it's a job. So I think it goes beyond of self-definition. There is also the qualification of actually practicing it, you know, of actually committing yourself to it and that being part of your personality, not just a hobby that happens. And you could be a dormant artist, but I also have this resent of, you know, self you know, if you go to LinkedIn, you know, oh, the people that just say there are something, and we believe it because we see it. The moment we see it, the moment we say, we manifest it so it's true. And it becomes like very difficult then because this is becoming very immediate, so accessible, because it's so easy to present yourself as such. There's no hearey, hearey. It becomes, you know, it dilutes the real value and the root of it. And the people that are in the grind, not making money out of it, or trying to fight it, because there's someone with more eyeballs and a bigger voice that just called himself this. So it might have been true, you know, when you were drunk, but I think we're, we're getting into a point that we need to be a bit more accountable for who we say we are and what we actually practice when we say we're doing it. And instead of, you know, just showing up is this, you know, the fake it till you make it is, yeah. is not my fave. But I, I, I didn't say I was right. I said that's where we got to and uh, we had no, to go no, to bed that's what I'm saying. We're going to yeah. go and drink and, yeah. and unravel this yeah. and you should see me on the vodka. Yeah. Actually, you know what, for this I might have tequila because this is like serious stuff that we need. It to is. It's deep unpack. stuff. But we, I think one of the things that we spoke about this afternoon, which I really feel quite passionate about is that if you don't go through that process of working through it every day and learning every day and practicing every day, you'll never gain 
the what did you call it? The inner eye? The, is, is that the word you used? Um, I was. I think I was mentioning Chick Saint Mahay's inner inner criteria. So you have to have the criteria. Most artist creators have the criteria of the field that they internalize. So um, you know, I'm a novelist, and I've internalized what good looks like in my field. If you're a painter, you've internalized what good looks like in your field. If you're a digital artist, you've inter internalized mm. what's good good in your field. So how do you how do you how do you develop that when you're just a, essentially being a prompt engineer or just doing some prompting? <laughs> Which is your um, uh, pixel pusher? I, I can't remember what you touch screen slider. Yeah, um, obviously that is a you know they're not yeah. a designer necessarily. Which you can you can have people that actually make it into art or design. Just like you can have people that might be able to use Midjourney in a way that is so brilliant it makes it art because it has context mm. and it has process and not just a product in the end. But again, it's, it's like the, the gaze of the product, like, oh, it looks great. It's like I'm a designer. It's like I'm a creative. It causes actual depression because of tactile deprivation. Yeah, on true. that note, that's a very. Uh, is there <laughs> so another, touch, is there touch people, question? make sourdough yeah. bread, break things, fail a lot. I've got a good quick question actually for one of our panelists. Given we've got somebody who's written a book about like augmented reality and mixed reality, like is Apple's new headset going to bring this to the masses? What do you think? <sighs> <laughs> yes. So, so actually, funny you would ask because I've been waiting. But when was it, two weeks ago, the 8th? Uh, I, was, I was waiting every time Apple published or launched every product. I was like, I know it's coming because I saw the LiDAR technology. I'm like, it's coming, it's coming. I actually, back in the days when I wrote the book, and, and Magic Leap was out and everybody were talking about the simulation without a product they had. Um, everybody were excited and I still thought and I still think that Apple will be the ones to introduce this technology in the best way because they have the full shebang. I mean, b besides the fact that they are probably the only ones sitting on piles of cash, like Smaug, like they have enough money to lose and they are investing in innovation, right? They're not living off just on, off debt or their market value. They are not living off selling your data. They collect it, but they don't sell it to third parties. So they're not building systems of engagement without, you know, to make something to sell it to someone else. Tick. Um, they've also been one of the companies that have this extraordinary range of hardware, software, and user base, an understanding of all of that, and user experience, which is, you know, no other company, no disrespect, have ruled all of that. Love Microsoft, but I wouldn't call Wards, you know, the biggest user experience. You know, I don't want to talk about the other software <laughs> they, they're bringing. So they have really all the, the spices to do it. They're also very, very brilliant of never being the first, but normally being the best when they launch. And that's from the MP3 player to laptops. So I believe that the Vision Pro that came out, I was crying with joy, because they also said, it's an augmented reality device. I'm like, yes, I was right. I called my husband, I was right. Um, it doesn't mean that immediately, I mean, it's a very costly device. Actually, it's not. If you look at the technology, it's quite amazing. It's, it's a really good price. 
because unlike Meta, they didn't sell their products at loss because they thought billions of people would use it. And I think it's okay that not everyone will have headsets tomorrow because you know our, our garbage deposits are full of devices that have been disposed of. I think AI won't be for everyone all the time. I think it shouldn't. Uh, but I think, uh, and I've threatened my university to drop off the PhD if they don't get a headset, so I might be looking for gigs soon. They said they will, but, you know, education. A, um... So I, I, it's, it looks, from what it looks, you know, I was just sitting there, from what it looks, and they always also deliver what they say they will, it looks pretty good. The, the integration, yeah, sorry, there you just touched on my favorite yeah, no, subject. There, yeah, look, uh, if you're interested, the, uh, have a look at the, um, I think it's released by Gartner on an, uh, on an annual, uh, the Gartner hype cycle around technology, and you'll notice that if you look at the years when Apple releases new products, they always uh, release them just after, um, a, 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 as it's coming up the plateau of productivity. They don't release them at the peak of uh, inflated expectations, which I think is a really interesting kind of, I guess, model um, in terms of uh, trend um, tracking. Um, look, that's the, the, the that's all we've got time for today. Um, um, and I, um, unless you, did you have one other thing that you wanted? To yeah. Me. So Apple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Hit me. I just all I want to say I have to finish it because this is like like my precious and <laughs> my precious and what what they release in terms of content is is not amazing yet but I know they're they've been working on it for years they've been showing AR but what they've done really beautifully beautifully is to develop um, an interaction system that is sonic visual gesture. Right, understanding of space, so all the ingredients are there. Again, will the audience adopt it immediately? Will it be? It, it doesn't matter for me, I'm very patient. The first, the first AR demo was in 1967, so again, like our thoughts are like, it's all happening now, like eh, kind of slow, and it was actually quite amazing. The, di the digital desk, oh my God, so cool. Um, it's happening. I'm, I'm, I don't have this FOMO because, I, again, I believe all these technologies are happening. Maybe not today, in a year, in 10 years. We're talking peanuts in terms of, you know, we will see them in our lifetime. You know, when we just want to push them and, like, and, and also convince others, like, it's all going to be, everyone are going to be on AI all the time, and everyone are going to be on the metaverse. It's, it's not going to happen like that. So I'm calm. And I wish, I wish for calm, consistent risk-taking for futures. I think we need to educate ourselves and ask the hard questions of like, what do we mean when we say it's coming? And come from a place of abundance, knowing that we have all the tech and not, you know, we're gonna miss the train. It's staying, it's not going anywhere. You know, nobody's, you know, losing, <laughs> you know. But, but we, not only do we have all the tech, but we have all of the, wisdom and we have all of the empathy and we have all of those yep. human aspects um, uh, of, of who we are that I think can take us to that new yeah. new space in, in, a, in an ethical and um, uh, sustainable. sustainable way. And sustainable, yeah. not yeah. just, you know, sustainability, the, the planet is burning, but sustainable for society, sustainable for technology mm. itself. We, we're, you know, sustainable for creativity because, you know, this is not a short-term game, not technology, nor creativity, nor education. So we have to play the long game, not 
it's not leaning back and waiting for it to happen, but we have to play the long game, you know, while having the small wins. Thank you. Thank you.